Welcome to Club Management. I'm your host, DJ Shannon. And on this show, we talk to artists, DJs, and industry professionals on how they're changing their community through music. You can listen to the show on any platform like SoundCloud, Spotify, or Apple Podcasts. Just type Club Management. And this is episode 72. We're back with another episode of the Club Management Podcast, episode 72 to be exact. Wow, thank you so much for tuning in to last week's episode with Dev Moore as well. Just honestly a goodie and just a great individual all around. Um, It was a pleasure to have him on the show to learn more about the exciting world of Web3 and just the incredible things that he brings to the community here in New York City. Um, I actually might be working on something with Dev and Next Dimensional very soon. So I'm excited for that to come out later on in the year. But yeah, I mean, it is a really, really exciting time to be here in New York City. It just feels like there's something always going on, whether there's a new club popping up left and right or some sort of unique experience to be a part of. Um, It's just incredible in the city right now. The energy is at an all time high. And what a time to be alive for the Dweller Festival this year. You know, I've talked so much about the importance of having that week dedicated to black electronic musicians. Um, And it's one thing to be on the dance floor and experience the festival. But now that I've seen the other side of actually providing that spiritual experience as an artist behind the decks, life changing. Uh, That 5 a.m. set went the hell off y'all it went off um and i want to thank anyone who sent me a message you know came up to me after the show and said that was such a beautiful set because honestly i had spent so much time hours weeks developing that set uh with so many things in mind you know i wanted it to be great obviously because it's Dweller, right? This was such a special moment for not only myself, but just for the history of black music in general here in New York City. It's such a special week. Um, so I had spent hours toiling over that and trying to get everything right, making sure that things were timed properly <laughs> because I knew I was going straight on after Sage Introspect. I knew the energy was going to be at a pretty high point. Um, so, and yeah, if you don't know Sage, I mean, the queen of two-step speed garage, you name it. You know, I wanted to keep a good balance of energy after her set, but I also wanted to kind of cleanse the dance floor and bring my own unique sound to the room. Um, and that was at nowadays, by the way, just so beautiful. I can, I just honestly can't put the experience into words. I really had the chance over that four hour time frame to go everywhere I wanted to possibly go. Like this was a dream set. <laughs> At one moment we started up with, you know, some gospel and really beautiful vocal house from Carrie Chandler. And then the next minute we went into, you know, God only knows. I mean, garage, we went to um ballet funk, we went to Jersey Club, Baltimore Club, you name it. The way that I was able to stitch and weave all of these genres and generations together in one set, I got to give myself a pat on the damn back because even I didn't see that one coming from myself. (laughs) 
I didn't see any of that. You know, and for those who have listened to my sets in the past, you know, I don't normally play like banging techno or like thrashing techno, but I even had a little bit of that packed in the set. And when I tell you people were going to hell off, that was probably around like 8 a.m. And the dance floor was still packed. When they said it was nonstop and nowadays it was truly nonstop. And I heard that I witnessed it and heard it from so many people that like the energy was just at an all time high all night. So if you were there, thank you so much for bringing your energy, your spirit, your kindness to the dance floor throughout the entire week. Not just me, you know, I saw so much unity at Jada Lorraine's set at uh, Elisa's set. She had the whole vibe town come out. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, that was so beautiful too. My girl played R&B music, some classics from the 90s. I mean, that was just so beautiful. Everybody bought their own unique way of telling a story with music to this festival. And I'm just so happy to be a part of it this year, honestly. So thank you for coming. Thank you for supporting everybody on the lineup, not just myself. Um, and yeah, for those who did send incredible messages, I'm just so thoroughly thankful and honestly, just so blessed to be a part of this community and give back in any way that I can. Um, I gotta say, I cried. I cried a little bit because <laughs> you guys were just showing me so much love. Um, and it was a redefining, it was a really a redefining moment for me, you know, a reminder of how much I love music and how much I love showcasing all forms of music and how much that's possible. You know, sometimes I put some limits on myself because, you know, there's an art to this thing, right? You got to know when, where to drop certain tracks, whether you can play these things at all in certain spaces. Um, but the fact that I had several people come up to me and say, this was truly a New York set, a representation of everything that this scene is about was just so beautiful. So thank you so much. I saw all the messages. If I didn't get a chance to say thank you, I'm thanking you right now. <laughs> thank you for giving me um, a new sense of flame into this thing. And I can't wait to see what, what happens next with everyone that was on the lineup this year, including myself. Speaking of history, we are lucky to have another guest this week who has been redefining music history in their own neck of the woods and around the world. This week, we welcome none other than DJ Sega, one of the forefathers of Philly club music. DJ Sega has been blaring down sound systems around the world for more than a decade with his hard-hitting, high-energy club anthems and edits. Sega's passion for producing stemmed from a rough time. After the death of his grandmother, the Philly native locked into producing as a way to process and mourn her sudden death. But after a few short years of toiling away at his musical production software, Sega created something special, combining the fundamental roots of Baltimore Club and Jersey Club's fast and rhythmic flair. The producer and DJ created Philly Club, a fast and energetic genre that rests at 140 to 155 BPM. To put his own unique stamp on the genre, 
Sega often incorporates samples close to music or shows that he grew up listening to as a kid. You'll hear elements of Family Guy, funk, New Jack Swing, you name it, in Sega's infectious production. For me, it was his New Jack Philly Swing series that really kicked everything off. Filled with familiar and fun samples from 90s New Jack Swing to R&B hits, Sega has a way of taking old classics and turning them into completely new tracks. I spoke to the producer about his early days of DJing at Philly's famed Jams Entertainment Center, the emergence of Philly Club, his time with Mad Decent, and Sega finally set the record straight about what really happened between him and Diplo. Listen to this. So you say you're in Atlanta right now, and what's happening there at the moment? Uh, Okay, so I stopped here in Atlanta to mm-hmm. see a few friends of mine, to surprise a few friends of mine. I've been on Twitch for uh, a little over two years now, and I've developed uh, quite the family on there, you know, as well as some enemies, but that's everywhere. Not um, on Twitch, really? Yeah, I'm, I broadcast on Twitch. But I'm saying the enemies are on Twitch too? <laughs> oh yeah, I mean, the, but the enemies are everywhere. I mean, not everybody's gonna like it, and not everybody's gonna be... Uh, on the same wavelength as you because sometimes when you're very very next level yeah. it confuses people people mm-hmm. uh fear the unknown and you know how that goes yeah man yeah and it's crazy it's it's actually really terrible to think about because music i mean that is the ultimate unifier right and the fact Absolutely. that people could even be about music something that was created for people to unite and enjoy it's just crazy to me really crazy to me. yeah um i mean at the same time it's not just about the music because believe it or not a lot of not a lot of people on twitch knows exactly who i am because i i, I just started kind of putting it out there wow. but i've been on, i've been on twitch mainly modding for other streamers and helping other streamers um, get on there and bring some quality to their stream and to their channels. I've just been doing more helping more so than helping myself. But as I've come to learn, I definitely need to help myself a lot more. So that's <laughs> what I'm doing. Um, I, I've got new websites. I've been streaming on Twitch regularly like crazy. I, I actually teach modding. I actually have a broadcast tonight. Um, Mod God Mondays where we trade the best tips and tricks with some of the best mods on Twitch. That's the slogan. Wow, that is so incredible. And I mean, now that we're on the topic of Twitch, that's literally how I discovered you, uh, you know, when everybody was kind of tucked away at home in 2020, just eager to, you know, have some sort of human interaction. And I found you through Elise, who kept, you know, praising you, your music, your channel. Yeah. You know, I would find myself every Sunday just jamming out, <laughs> watching you during the weekdays, and then just discovering all of the wild edits and original work that you have on your band camp. I mean, you are just so amazing. So I'm honored to be talking to you. <laughs> I, I really appreciate that. And I'm honored that you have me uh, on your very, very um, elegant and legendary podcast. Thank you so much. You know what well, saying? Takes one to know one. <laughs> Thank you so much. Well, I'm just interested to hear about your backstory before we go into 
all the incredible stuff that you're doing now, my uh, little research that I've been doing on you uh, leading up to this interview, uh, my understanding is that your journey as a DJ and producer really started at the Jams Entertainment Center. Am I right? Yes, you're absolutely right. It started at the skate rink that used to be called Wow uh, Skating Rink uh, in Northeast Philadelphia. Wow. I used to frequent there during the teen late nights because I love club music that much. And I grew up uh, going to places like that because in Philadelphia, we love club music almost as much, if not more than Baltimore. And even the OGs of Baltimore Club will tell you that, mm-hmm. you know, there's a there's a lot of love for that um just for that energy i mean when you play a rod lee track in a club (laughs) it it goes crazy in philadelphia right right yeah man i can only imagine (laughs) you know like i really hope to come to philly and and watch the dance scene and see you know how things are going now and Man, I'm sure it was wild back then uh, during those days at the Jams Entertainment Center. So how did you get introduced to that world? Um, Believe it or not, uh, next year will actually mark 20 years that I've been DJ Sago, mm-hmm. uh, the club music producer, um, going, going from making my very, very first track. Um, it actually started as an outlet because I was mourning the passing of my grandmother. This was September 2004. September 2004, my grandmother passed and I needed an outlet because I didn't have anybody to talk to. You know, my mom's going through it because it was her mother and I needed to be strong for her. And it took me years to even shed a tear because I wanted to remain strong for my family. I'm like, somebody's got to do it. I'll take on that cross. And the only outlet that I was able to have was just making club music. I started making club music because I had an email that was given to me. Mm -hmm. Um, It was a survey. And they asked me if I was to make a music production software, what ideas would I want implemented? And I gave them a few ideas. I got an email back saying they used some of the ideas. Here's the software for free. That was Acoustica Beatcraft. Mm-hmm. And uh, what that looks like is what Fruity Loops looks like now, but bare bones. Wow. So, um, but I started on Acoustica Beatcraft and I was just making some, just making little tunes for me to listen to. A, because I didn't have access to the Baltimore club music uh, individual songs, like from beginning to end. And I just needed something to do because I was mourning the passing of my grandmother. So it was kind of just a hobby at first. And then eventually um, a few people within less than a year uh, from, it was the summer after that fall. They're they're listening to my tracks, you know, and they're like, yo, let me borrow this. And next thing I know, there's DJs playing parties and making mixtapes with my music on it. And I'm not. (laughs) So it goes from a hobby to a hustle real quick. Right. 
And before you know it, I'm I'm taking in the mindset like, all right, well, I'm a, I could easily be a drug dealer, but I'm not a drug dealer, but I can have the mindset of a drug dealer as far as this club music game. So let me go for the kids. Let me cook up this crack. Let me get these kids fiending for this crack yeah. and get them hooked. And that's exactly what happened. Wow. And I want to talk a little bit about, I mean, just your brilliant way of like taking old tracks and bending them into these really like hard 140 club beats. Um, how did you go about like incorporating samples at first into your music? Was it something that you had always done like uh, earlier on or something you kind of gradually worked up to? Well, I, so the first three tracks I ever did Track number one was called Philly Percolator. I just pretty much took a vet, I took the percolator sound and very, very simply made a song mm -hmm. just to see if I could make one. Then I did a Philly Percolator 2, where I kind of had a little bit of fun with it, but not really. And then the third song was called uh, Doo Doo Annoying because club music, <laughs> Because of the doo-doo kids, shout outs to DJ Booman, KW Griff, and Jimmy Jones, God rest his soul. Um, they were the doo-doo kids, and a lot of the songs that they made had the word doo-doo behind it, i.e. doo-doo rock. And that's the classic Baltimore club, you know, feel that beat, and they can ride the boogie, you know. Uh, classic, and that's called doo-doo rock. That's the real name of that song. It's called Doodoo Rock. And so my third song was called Doodoo Annoying. <laughs> and what I did was I had an idea that just kind of came to mind. And I just was like, let me see if I could do it. And I take the part from Dumb and Dumber where they're like, hey, want to hear the most annoying sound in the world? And I just sample that. <laughs> I sample that. I make that into a track. Uh, it starts off just like a like a bother, like a tap on the shoulder, like, hey, it just comes on like really nonchalantly. The beat is in, but all you hear is the hey. And then eventually you're like, hey, want to hear the most annoying sound in the world? And it repeats until you hear it in the beat. And that was due to annoying. So after that, there was a few ideas that started coming to mind where I'm like, okay, if I could execute these things and I can execute these ideas, maybe I could pull certain things off. So what came not long after that was a song called, uh, that, that I call a Looney Tune, mm. where I take the duck season, rabbit season cartoon and I flip that into a club song. Yeah. Oh my goodness. And you did something similar with the Family Guy um, sample. I forget. What's the character's name that's always talking about? Glenn <laughs> Quagmire. Yeah, Glenn Quagmire. <laughs> that one is brilliant as well. Thank you. I, that came around the era where people were taking club songs, making YouTube videos, and saying SpongeBob Wu Tangs to this whatever song, right? And it would be pretty much just a unmatched, um, you know, throw it off. It would just be like a loop of a SpongeBob just moving, jittering or whatever. And it's not on time. It's not nothing. It's not like 
done right to me. So I yeah. saw that and I'm like, I, there should be something better and let me show you what better looks like. And so after the sponge, all the SpongeBob Wu-Tang videos that were coming out on YouTube, I decided to make Glenn's theme. Ooh, yeah, oh, More yeah. specifically as a video. And so it will give people, it will set a bar mm-hmm. as far as club music and animations and things like that. If you're going to, if you're going to tamper with, you know, things like a SpongeBob or Muppets or anything like that, make it dope. That's mm-hmm. all. Just make it dope. Make it look dope. There was a, there's a video that I saw and it's funny that you bring this up because I wouldn't think, you know, Glenn's theme or the Quagmire video had anything to do with influencing something uh, like this of today. But there was a video that popped up of uh, somebody took Charlie Brown clips mm-hmm. and they laid they laid it over, let me clear my throat. And it looks so dope. <laughs> I can't even imagine the two being paired together. I will send it to you. Yes, I, I got to see that. Oh my God. Even the, uh, 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 you, you see uh, uh, Charlie Brown with his hand around his neck and he's choking. Or it might be a hand around his neck, but he's choking. <laughs> oh my goodness. Oh man. Yeah, I got to check that out. You definitely send that to me. Um, but now that I have the pioneer of Philly club music speaking to me right now, it's really great to have you here because you can set the record straight for a lot of people who, who often get Philly club, Baltimore club and Jersey club confused. Mm-hmm. What is the thing that differentiates all three of these genres from each other? The producers and where they're from, therefore the environment that inspires said music. When you hear Baltimore Club, you're hearing the city of Baltimore in that music. And that's because of the people who are from that city that is in that environment that's making that music. Same thing goes for what used to be called Brick City Club music. Shout out to DJ Tamil. He actually started his first record, if I'm not mistaken, uh, was a Baltimore Club record because he was in Baltimore. He was the only person from outside of Baltimore going into Baltimore going, I want these tracks. And he was going to the OGs. He was going to the producers. And before you know it, he was making club tracks himself. And they made, they put out a release, mm. you know, of his productions. Uh, my Neck, My Back will also, will always be a classic to me. It mm. feels like Baltimore, but it's made by DJ Tamil. And that was for a reason. That's for a reason. So it, paying homage to the city and the sound means that you're using familiar things, but there's got to be some part of you and some part of where are you from that matters to that. So you can see why I be, I, I'm annoyed from people in fucking yeah. Europe who claim they're making Jersey Club or Baltimore Club or Philly Club. They're not from these places. They're not in these environments. Therefore, they can't make this music. Mm. It's an impossibility. Yeah. How can you make Jersey Club and you don't, you've never smelled Jersey? Mm. You never even take, you never even have had that oxygen up your nostrils to tickle your brain to come up with an idea such as uh, have the ideas that a DJ Tim Dollar could come up with. Mm. 
and execute it in a way that only a DJ Tim Dollar, God rest his soul, can execute it. Yeah. And when it comes to uh, the differences, I mean, you know, you got KW Griff, Rod Lee, DJ Techniques, uh, Scotty B, all of them are from Baltimore. You have DJ Tamil, DJ Tim Dollar, Mike V, uh, the Triple Threat. You have, they're from Jersey. And then I'm from Philadelphia. So if you understand the history of Philadelphia, we're a melting pot of cultures. The country began in Philadelphia. We've had, we have Philadelphia International Records. You know, Philadelphia soul is a thing. Um, it's also a th showmanship. You know, people, there's a lot of artists who can't launch without coming to Philly and launching or testing the audiences. Because if you can't get through Philly, they say it's New York, but that's just economically speaking. We're the people. Right. You can't get through the people of Philadelphia. You can't get through nobody. Ooh, that's a fact. Look at what we did to Santa. <laughs> Go birds. <laughs> yeah. We're heading to the Super Bowl. So you can yeah. feel the championship all over Philadelphia. We're the under we're the underdog city. I mean, look at Creed. Look at the Rocky stories. We're always the number two city reaching for number one, which is why we're always number one mm -hmm. and the food is slamming there too oh my goodness i gotta go to philly soon yeah. <laughs> come get one of these greasy ass cheese steaks <laughs> these cheesy so ass pretzels come get you a hoagie where they call it a sub every fucking where else <laughs> that is so funny um i mean keeping in line with the topic of uh you know colonizers or people that you know come into the culture without knowing anything about the culture um if and if you don't feel comfortable talking about it please decline but damn I, that i feel more comfortable talking about this let's okay. go uh, um, I'm interested to hear about your time at Mad Decent and what happened with Diplo, because that was controversial for you as well. Yes, it was. It, um, it, it was actually a really, really great time. That was a really great chapter in my career. I can say I earned it. I can say I worked for it. And I can also say I gave a lot of value away. Mm. Now, there's different parts of that chapter um that says those things you know me getting into it right. me being in it me contributing to that brand that is known as mad decent and mm -hmm. i'm not talking about what people might think of nowadays i mean when you heard mad decent in or around philadelphia to around the world it rang bells and it wasn't just because it was diplo's label let's keep it real I wore that shit on my back just like I wore the Brick Bandits logo on my back. No different than I wore the club culture on my back. Mm -hmm. The difference is, <laughs> and this is the and this is the the funny part. I actually might have manifested that entire situation because after I made those very three songs I just told you about, mm -hmm. I sat in a computer chair and I had a vision. Mm -hmm. I had a vision. I was standing on stage. There was a lot of people cheering, Sega, Sega, Sega. I'm looking at the people. I'm looking at the different faces. There's different colors, different heights, different ages from different backgrounds, all in one place. 
shouting one name and not one of them are is talking about a genesis mm. i look down and i'm behind a dj booth and i'm thinking okay so how do i get here well obviously i would have to have the kind of catalog that would be able to touch musically each and every one of those different people with different ages from different backgrounds. So my catalog would have to be thick, 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 thick. Right. And mind you, I was only three songs in <laughs> <laughs> having this vision. And I'm like, okay, well, what do I need to do to get to that point to have all of those songs and all of Well, just start here and just keep going. And before I know it, there will have to be somebody that would pop up, who would be white, who would have to co-sign that shit because I do know that where I am as far as America. I do know where I'm from as far as America is concerned. I mean, Philadelphia is the first U.S. capital of, the, of, the, of America, which means that I know all of the history, mm. including the dark parts. Right us being the dark parts you know I, I am a descendant of american slave here on this land there's blood sweat and tears in this soil so i'm very familiar with the history and how we're treated how the artists were treated how the inventors are treated and i do know that there's always somebody somewhere that comes down the line to take something they give yeah. something but they take something and what they give usually isn't as tangible as what they take. Mm. Now, I knew somebody was going to have to come along and co-sign me in order for me to get that far. I just didn't know who it would be. Right. And I didn't know how I, would, how I would get to that point. Now, fast forward to um, me going to the skating rink. I'm about a year and a half. I'm proud of myself. I, I'm a bunch of Philly classics. In, you know, I'm talking mixtapes and tracks, and um, and I want to expand. So I go to the record store downtown Armand's, and I'm like, "How do I get my CDs in here? I want my CDs right up there next to K Swift's, mm. right among right among the other DJs who who who, who I, whose names I don't remember. Thank God, because their mixtapes weren't shit compared to mine." Mm. because I love this shit more than they do. And you can tell. Mm. Um, so I wanted my CDs up there. So they was like, you got to talk to Dirty South Joe. But he's not here. I'm like, okay. So I kept going back. And eventually I met Dirty South Joe, who I would eventually come to play, not just the music that I would have um, ready to sell at that store, but music I had in a tub. There were songs that I made around that era because that era was the party like a rock star era, right? And you know trends and fads and you know how people hop on quote waves and I can't stand that shit because that means that that's not part of your character. That's not part of who you are. Therefore, you just hopping on some shit and you're only gonna be there temporarily. Mm. So the party like a rock star era and chapter, you know, I was like, you know what? Let me show y'all what partying like a rock star really looks and feels like. Hence why I made Last Resort. Right. 
But there was another song that I made that I kept away from those kids at the skate rink and I played it for Joe. That was my remix to Mudvayne's Dig. Mm -hmm. And that blew his mind. And he said, yo, this shit is so hard. I want to kick a hole in this fucking counter. I know somebody. He just started a record label. You would be one of the first people signed to said record label. If he chooses to sign you. We just going to go for having him put out a release and we'll see what happens. If he says no to whatever, then we'll do it ourselves. I'm like, cool. He introduced me to Diplo. Mm -hmm. Fast forward, you got Holotronics 8 vinyl that comes out and it's because of the rock stuff. This is now where DJ Sega goes from as a brand goes from, you know, being all up and down the East Coast to worldwide because there's people hearing that smells like Teen Spirit and they're like, yo, we need to get that artist over here. Yeah. Diplo included. So then comes Holotronics 8. He slapped the pentagram on that one. So you could think that you could thank him for that. If you pull up the Holotronics 8 vinyl, you see the pentagram with the goat in it, and it says, Welcome to Hell. Now, I get it. That's supposed to be a play on the rock shit, you know, but that's still sus to me because I ain't signed off for that shit. They just thought it would be cool. And I'm like, All right. But I did make sure that Wuha was on that. So it's on record. Wax vinyl, a Philly classic that was already. Philly Classic is now solidified mm-hmm. and Shazamable, by the way. <laughs> um, I'm proud of that. Um, but yeah, the, the, you know, we started traveling around the world. We started doing big things. And he started to see how my energy couldn't be contained systematically. Mm-hmm. He started to see how he, there, was a, there was a gig in Austin, right outside of Boston we did. And I was opening up for him, of course, and he pulled me to a side. He was like, yo, Sega, just uh, can just um, just kill it. Don't murder it. And I laughed at him and I said, what the fuck does that mean? Wait, can I cuss on that? Yeah, you can cuss on here. <laughs> okay, just checking. Just checking. I, I, I'm, I'm, I think I'm doing good. My Twitch folks would be surprised that I went this long without cussing. <laughs> um. He's, I, he said, just kill it. Don't murder it. And I knew immediately that they were trying to water me down, mm-hmm. that they were that I was making him look bad because I was more genuine than he was. Look, I laughed at him. He felt some type of way. I got up there. I did my thing. There were women who jumped up on the stage and they were just dancing and it was a good time. Boom. It's his turn to perform. He gets up there and he goes, everybody pun the stage. And he, it would come that this would happen a lot where people would naturally come up on stage when I'm spinning and they would dance if they're allowed to. And it's not like I tell them to, they crawl up there. I don't tell them to hop up there. But this particular night was the start of that. He says, everybody upon the stage. Girls got up there, dudes got up there. He trying to DJ, boom, somebody accidentally kick out a cord. And I'm like, see? Mm. That's that bullshit right there. That's what you get for being unrighteous. That's what happens when you try to force a natural moment. You don't do that. But he's a face to a brand. That's a system. 
that is supposed to have that that's supposed to look to seek certain results, you know, and um, yeah, eventually there would be tension because I would not water myself down. I would do my thing and um, then in comes the Mad Decent Block Party, right? And here's how that actually happened. We were throwing parties at the Mad Decent Mausoleum, right? And this is the me giving away the ideas of very, very high value things, right? Mm-hmm. We were throwing parties at the mausoleum and we were getting complaints. The neighbors would call the police and they're like, yo, uh, y'all going to have to stop throwing parties here. So one particular, I think it was, I, I don't even remember what day it was. I just know it was during the day. Um, Diplo, Jasper, Dirty South Joe are all out on the balcony talking and they talking business and every time they talk business, they hate for me to be around it. <laughs> but I was always sticking my head in business. Okay. Um, they was and and this is and here's what the fuck I get for it. Uh, they're talking about the complaints. They're like, "Yo, we got we might have to stop throwing parties here. We got to figure out something else." Yada yada yada, because the neighbors are complaining. I walk up to them as a you know as a man that's a problem solver. I'm always critically analyzing things. I go I walk right up to him. I'm like, "Look, you're the white man with the face and the money. All we got to do." is throw a block party because in order to do that you have to go door to door you have to ask each neighbor to sign off on it in doing so you pay for everything because you got the money to do it so you buy the hot dogs you buy the hamburgers you get the dunk tank but because we're record label throwing this shit you get to have a stage where your artists get to perform and therefore the neighbors get to be introduced to exactly who we are so anytime we're throwing a party over here, there's no asking questions. What's going on over there? Who's over there? Why are they doing what they're doing over there? Because they know. Right. right, right. Boom. You had the Mad Decent Block Party. It goes off like crazy three years in a row on that little ass block, and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Now, the thing is, is that around the city of Philadelphia, there's people who already play my shit at block parties. I tend to pop up at block parties and they're waiting on, quote, DJ Sega to have a proper stage. So in giving them that idea, that's what I was doing. I was giving them an idea, but I was doing something for me. However, when the sponsors start coming in, when they start wanting to make money and start going on tour, they started separating me from the brand purposely. Wow. Four city tour of a mad decent block party, but DJ Sega's only scheduled to be on Philadelphia until he blow he turn he literally turns that block party into an EDM festival right before everybody's eyes, especially that third year. So much so, he admitted it publicly on Twitter. He said, DJ Sega just turned this block party into a damn festival and took this up another level. He said that publicly. So when people ask him, you going to be in New York? I'm like, I'm not scheduled to be on New York. He's like, he's going to be there. Wow. You know who wasn't there? Who wasn't there? Diplo. (laughs) 
He wasn't there at all. I was, and I did two sets. I opened for the whole shit. People gathered. It went from one one person at that stage when I started to it being a packed show by the time I got off that stage. Wow. That's crazy. So, so basically, just want to get this straight. So basically, you felt like he was stifling you at some point. Because oh no, there's nothing to feel about it. I mean, I told you what he said. Yeah, <laughs> there's no yeah. need for nothing to feel. He was the, the the system and the label was because there's a lot of people who's gotten money invested, and they got it invested in him. Gotcha. He's invested in me, but not like that. Not to the point where he could be replaced. Because mm. it ain't gonna happen. Right. Hence why they gave the, the whole narrative at the time where he signed me to Mad Decent was he was my mentor. I was his protege. Never mind that they always come in to learn and take. Mm. So who was the protege? Right. Yeah. And the only reason why the shit blew up publicly as far as the tension between me and him was because I, I was I was I was coming up on my 10 year anniversary. This was 10 years ago. And I disappeared for a second because I'm looking at how I'm being treated and I'm not liking it. I'm not liking it from my management. I'm not liking it from the record label. I'm not liking it from anybody that I'm that I call myself trying to work with, because let's be honest, uh, a lot of them weren't people of color. Hmm. They were people who had resources and the people who were of color, instead of being the gears behind the face of the watch, they just wanted to be the face of the watch. So anybody who saw me, they're like, I want to be a DJ too. I want to be a producer too. Nobody wanted to be a manager. Nobody wanted to be an agent. Nobody wanted to handle the business. Right. Everybody wanted to be on stage. But I was working with people and I was, you know, maintaining the culture and the brand and, and the music. And I kept getting people's asses to kiss. So I disappeared for a second coming up on my 10 year anniversary because um, my first year, even making that music, I, I told you what happened in my first quarter of my senior year, it was hell. You know, I lost my grandmother and that wasn't the only thing that happened, but that's how it started. Mm. You know, first quarter, my grandmother passed for second quarter. I got transferred out of the worst school in Philadelphia, having to start over third quarter. My grandfather passed fourth quarter. I was homeless for two months because I was back and forth me against my family because they're mourning and I'm like, I'm tired of being a punching bag. So I was out and that was my senior year of high school, but that was the first year of DJ Sega, the producer, because that was the only, that was the year that I was using, making music as an outlet. So coming up on the 10 anniversary, I knew I was going to be faced with some shit. So I was like, all right, I got to disappear for a second. I went to Australia for three months. Nobody knew. Uh, they, they called themselves publicly looking for me. And I'm like, none of y'all motherfuckers really give a shit about me. I don't know why y'all acting like y'all are. Wow. But okay. Because this shit will be put to a test. I just didn't know how much. I came back home my and, and I take care of my mother and my uncle. Yeah. Right? Um, They're both disabled. I still take care of them to this day. Um, but there was a water pipe that burst all over the kitchen floor and it was leaking for 36 hours. We was renting this fucked up house from the slumlord for years. And this is prior to Mad Decent. 
And it was like things were getting worse and worse and worse. And there was a plug on that uh, kitchen floor. They could have died. And I was fed up. I was like, you know what? All right, I'm just cashing in all my chips because I just know what's about to happen next. Um, I got to call Elena. I put out a mix. That way motherfuckers couldn't even say, pull yourself up by the bootstraps. You ain't put out shit. And I've been consistent the entire fucking time, including just before the GoFundMe page and right after it. So so nobody could have used the excuse, you're not putting in this work. You're dragging ass. Pull yourself up by the bootstraps like they always tell us Mm. to try to devalue our work and our work ethic. Mm-hmm. Um, creating a narrative that we're lazy and shit. Um, but I called Elena. Lady came out, said, this is the worst house I've ever seen. Y'all got 48 hours to move out. We're condemning this place. Oof. And um, so I just knew. I'm like, all right, well, I could make the bread to handle this, but it would take some time. Mm-hmm. I need this bread like now. So I put up a GoFundMe page and I was like, look, y'all know me as this, but when I get off stage, this is who I am. This is what I take care of. And right now, this is the situation. Right. And I only asked for what I made, what I make an hour overseas, which at the time was $1,500, mm-hmm. which is, it can be a lot in that situation, but it's not much if you understand, you know, moving shit around. Mm-hmm. Um, so that happened, you know, a lot of people donated, the, the entire world donated a total of $6,500 uh, to my family. And I, and I thank them all the time for that. Um, but what happened was everybody was asking, where's Diplo in all of this? He's in 22 Jump Street with a fellow artist that I worked with at the time, Bra-Ra, who was on the cast for, the, for 21 Jump Street and 22 Jump Street. Mm. But Diplo was actually in the second one, performing. Right. And at the time, this was in movie theaters, and people was asking me, "Where's Diplo and all this?" And I'm like, "Don't ask me." And this ain't this ain't got shit to do with him, but they think it does. Mm. So they then they go to him, and they're like, "Well, you got all the money, and this is supposed to be your protege, and he's such a beast. Why is he going through all of this, and you're up there, and he's over there going through this? That doesn't make any sense." Right. He got mad. And this was his words verbatim. I'll never forget this because I had the biggest smile on my face because I said he cracked. Mm. He cracked. He fucked up when he said this. He showed that I was a threat to him. Mm. When he said these exact words and I was tagged. He said, if you bums made good music, we might try and help y'all. We ain't a homeless shelter. I'll never forget those words. I took a screenshot of it immediately, tried to repost it, tried to favorite it. Couldn't because he deleted it. I posted it. And it's still to this day posted. Jesus, what a dick. What's really good. And this is the same dude. And and it's printed in magazines, newspapers, all kinds of shit. With him saying, yo, Sega's a beast. I would be a proud mentor if I could get him to spend uh, uh, Madison Square Garden because I know he would kill it. All of a sudden, overnight, I'm a bum, not making good music. That's bugged out. And that y'all not a homeless shelter. First of all, let let's. I'm not even going to go into the fact that everybody damn near smelt homeless on a goddamn record label. 
Because <laughs> motherfuckers just be working and not washing their ass sometimes. <laughs> <But> whatever. <laughs> oh, my God. I didn't say it smelled. Well, it smelled like it because nah, I, what I did was because I understood it was chess. Yeah. Um, and I understood where I, what was, what was going on, what position in my career I was at, because I knew it was, it would get here because if it happened to a James Brown or a Jackie Wilson or a Michael Jackson or anybody, who the fuck is a Robert Taylor Jr. AKA DJ Sega wow. for it not to happen to, for some white dude to come along, take what he could take tangibly and then leave me to quote, pull myself up by the bootstraps. Yeah, who am I? Right. So, wait, how did your deal with Mad Decent work? Did you own your masters or do they own the, some of the content that you made at the label? Well, it was a complicated contract because it wasn't like, so it, it was more like they get, they get deals to do releases and then they get me to do a remix or two. Gotcha. And either they pay me or it goes towards something. <laughs> but you nine times out of 10, I got paid. It was a short fee and that was it. Just one-offs. Hence why a lot of those releases are, you can actually Shazam and find in different platforms, you know, and those are my absolute best because they were commissioned and they came through the system. So you can hear the difference between uh, um, an ID engager remix versus a click, click, boom (laughs) remix. Like you can hear the difference between what I was paid to do and I didn't know the song, probably wasn't sure if I liked the song and I did it anyway because it was money to be paid because I got people I take care of right. Um, versus the shit that I did for free because I fucking wanted to. Right, right, right. Oh, man. But, um, it, but they were itching for me to do original music. Matter of fact, so much so. Here's another secret. Ponda Floor is a joke. If Sega was known for making nothing but remixes and it you it it would piss them off because they can't do shit with remixes but so much unless it was a Diplo doing a remix in the fucking cover then they could do whatever with that they can't do shit with a DJ Sega remix apparently because of samples whatever the fuck that means oh my god but they needed original content to put out you know original shit so they can make some money off of it and i did one original ep but i put that shit out myself it's literally called is that your ep (laughs) (laughs) that's a great name (laughs) and it's all original and it literally goes from like edm s housey shit with a taste of club in it and as you get through the ep you get more and more clubby but it's all original it's all original content it's all original ideas and mad decent didn't put that out uh, but Ponda Floor was a joke because it was if Sega was to make an original club beat, what would it sound like? Mm-hmm. It would begin like this. It would probably start like it would probably go into another intro because I'm the king of the intro before the intro before the intros. <laughs> <laughs> and then it would just be a simple and then say something and then it just drops. And then maybe a, uh, 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 just it's a big ass joke. If Sega was to make an original club beat 
what would it sound like? What's the formula? What's the blueprint of what it should sound like? How should it start? Very simple. Using the same snare pattern I used in fucking high school, because I always liked it. That That was only used one time in club music. And that was KW Griff. After that, I used the fuck out of it. And then comes everybody else. Ooh, damn, that's crazy. So not only was he threatened by your presence, but then he was jacking elements from your production too? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, the, the pounded floor was a joke. It was like, all right, well, if Sega was to make an original club joint, what would it sound like? And that became uh, the, the, the major laser project which got borrowed and remixed and released by Beyonce to run the world. Mm -hmm. And uh, if you listen closely, Diddy Dirty Money, um, Mm -hmm. that Swiss Beast joint that, uh, if you're in the club, get your ass on the floor. Yeah. (laughs) Same shit with a synth over it. And don't sing it and shit. I'm assuming you guys don't talk at all to to this day. Yeah. But it's an original club beat that people can now take and use. Right, 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 right. Hence what what their plan was in the first place. Man, that's, it makes, it hurts my heart, you know, because, I mean, you signed to this label with all of the intention to expand and create more incredible influence and impact with your music and to have people kind of like show their ass and, you know. Yeah. It is what it is. Karma's a bitch. I mean, I have front row seat to some conspiracy theory shit that I've never seen before. <laughs> so. We'll say that for another podcast. <laughs> that's for another podcast. Yeah, that's a fact. Um, but you know what? Moving right along to all the incredible stuff that you're doing now. I mean, you still are uh, creating so much community and impact today with your music. Um, the simple fact, being on Twitch, all the gems that you share, whether it be how to, you know, access um, key elements for streaming, you know, making people feel so great on a Sunday with their family, uh, with your, yeah, I like to call it your Sunday sermon jam. <laughs> <laughs> like god complex yeah god complex man that was just so special to have especially during the pandemic where things were just so rough for everybody so um yeah you had mentioned earlier that you had always kind of been interested in in twitch but when did you start doing it like full-time well it wasn't just twitch it was streaming and bringing content that i can control 100 percent of it's difficult getting a stage uh built for you if, without a team <laughs> like and you have to give ideas to people like a diplo for a mad decent block party so those things can manifest and happen mm-hmm. versus me putting together anything and everything that you see on that screen the second i hit that go live button no hundred man team needed to bring the fire that i bring or the smoke or the dank that i bring on my <laughs> broadcast yeah yeah i do what i want i show what i want how i want it 
Mm-hmm. And I can yeah. let my imagination run Scott wild, and y'all get to get a piece of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Without a yeah, motherfucking yeah. complaining. <laughs> yeah, without the complaining. Although, you know, sometimes in the chat, people are always talking shit and stuff, but. Nah, know. I'm talking more like people going, you shouldn't do that. You shouldn't say that. But those aren't usually people in my chat. Thank God for that. I mean, there's been, like, I could count on one hand how many people goes, I don't want to see that, but that's only because I be hitting the Jimmy dance sometimes, you know. <laughs> um, and, and for yeah. those who don't know, that is that is not uh, what you might think it is, unless it is. It's Jimmy from Ed, Ned, and Nettie, you know, that classic cartoon with him uh, hitting that dance in his bedroom, swinging his drawers over his head. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I hit that dance sometimes on my street. Oh my goodness, I love it. Um, and I mean, I think the last time that I saw you, yeah, it was for the God Complex. Um, but yeah, you always have like really creative things going on in the background, like fun little graphics that play. Um, and during the pandemic, I remember you threw a birthday party for somebody that works closely for uh, closely with you. Um, I forget their names, but that was fun. I, I I know I popped in for a little bit during that stream and had a great time. Um, see, that's, I, I love that. I love that you are always giving back, whether it's through your music or just teaching people how to do whatever it is, you know, um, mm-hmm. or just giving them inspiration. That's huge in and of itself. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the new Jack Philly series because mm. that was that is just constantly playing in all the clubs that I have been to over these last <laughs> two wow. years. I, people just love it. They love the entire series, myself included. What were you, where were you when you were creating that that series? So New Jack Philly is like a project concept um, from an idea that had reached a peak so high that it came out in that form. And mm-hmm. that is that very thing that I mentioned earlier, you know, have the mindset of a drug dealer in this club music shit and, you know, um, making a do what it do. Mm-hmm. So being like the Nino doo-doo brown of this shit, <laughs> that was what gave me the concept of, you know, New Jack Philly. And I love New Jack Swing. You know, I grew up on New Jack Swing. I'm an I'm a eighties, late eighties baby. Um and New Jack Swing has always just been hugely influential. I mean, it was I mean Teddy produced my favorite Michael Jackson album. That's dangerous. And that's mm-hmm. because I was alive when that album dropped. I might have been alive for bad because I was born in eighty seven, but I remember the first time I heard Dangerous. And I remember how scared I was when I first heard that glass break. Yeah. Um, changed my life, <laughs> changed, definitely changed my life. But I wanted to pay um, homage to that sound. I wanted to merge that sound with club music. Of course, you know, put my signature all over it. But behind that is also the idea of have the mindset of a drug dealer. Like, I want people fiending for this shit. This shit is so good. I need another hit. I need another hit. Where's the drug dealer? Where is he at? I need to find him. Mm -hmm. Um, Because that's how I was when I was introduced to club music. 
the sound and I and I became a hardcore fan of it. You know, I'm a I'm a one of those loyal fans. I wanted to know who Rodley was so I could say his name. I wanted to know who DJ Technique was so I could say his name. Same for the Brick Bandits. And um, you know. Um, so New Jack Philly was exactly that. That was all of those things combined that was kind of coming into what would be like one of the biggest projects of my career. And this was released through Mad Decent as well on CD. And it would have a, you know, a UP, a UPC barcode and all that. And so I definitely put my foot in there. And as far as taking what I've uh, learned and applied to my mixtapes, making it an experience, putting certain messages in it, even though there's some messages that scared me about mm-hmm. New Jack Philly. You might have to save that for a Michael Jackson day or something. Okay. But, uh, <laughs> but um, yeah, that 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 CD being being released May second, two thousand nine. I'll never forget it because that was my sister's birthday, and that was also the last day of the Barack Hassan System of Tour, the two week tour that I was on opening for them. And I didn't get my CDs to sell on the tour until the last damn day. And that was New York Bowery Ballroom. And that was May 2nd, 2009. Hey, no New York has to represent. I mean, you talking about that that feeling of like fiending for a track. I know when I heard somebody uh, play Hey Mr. DJ in the club and I found out it was you, I was like, okay. I got to find out what else he's got, you know? <laughs> like that was my Oh, game. Hey Mr. DJ. Yeah. Oh, Almost forgot man. about that one. Yeah, that's from New Jack Philly too. I I I returned to that idea with a double album recently. You know, really? after the pandemic. You know, so that's the sequel, the double album sequel to that. And uh, spoiler alert: there will be a CD form that I'll make of that that will actually be extended. So the digital mm-hmm. version will be the digital version, but the CDs, the two CD version. Yeah, I'm putting them on CDs that way. If you really want it, you can have it. That's but the, cool. but the version will on the for the CD will only be on CD. There will be some songs on there that are not on the original um, digital copy. There will be some uh, extended versions that are on the uh, CD version. It will be like an uncut, uncensored um, collector's edition Ooh. of New Jack Philly too. And I'm I'm working on that as well. That's awesome. That's going to be put out through your Bandcamp, or uh, pretty much. I mean, I have my own, you know, stores. the 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 digital form is on Bandcamp. I can have it available on Bandcamp to sell, but I also have uh, it will be in my own DJ Sega store. I have uh, quite a few items actually. There's a DJ Sega limited edition USB that I actually still have a few of. Um, at first it was 200, but it's a year later and I will be updating it. So it already had over 300 files on it and over 25 folders. And it's a 16 gig flash drive and it has my logo on it. Very, very limited edition. And it was $200, but now it's about to go up to $300 because I got a bunch of more music to put on it. I'm a fool, 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 I'
coming out of the interview between me and DJ Sega. What a special one and truly a reminder that anything can be accomplished even in the face of adversity. I mean, Sega has been through so much and he still chooses to be a shining light in this world and is still making music, touring, building an incredible community with his uh, Twitch community. It's awesome to see him excel and I just can't wait to see where he goes next. And an honor to actually speak to him and get a chance to hear his story. Well, that is a wrap for this episode. Thanks so much for all your support and please do consider donating at Patreon. You get access to early shows and exclusive content from me. Find us at patreon.com slash clubmanagement1. Until next time.